welcome back to another episode of the Master Engineer Podcast. I am as always your host Sotak Andre and you are listening to episode 14 in uh, which I am going to bring you the second part of my conversation with Dr. Scott Stevenson. First of all, if you haven't listened to episode 13 which is the first part of this amazing conversation, pause this and go back to that and listen to that first to hear Scott's background and um, how he came up with his own fortitude training and a bunch of other cool topics. In this episode, we continue our conversation around muscle hypertrophy and we discuss whether volume or intensity are the more important factor for muscle hypertrophy, whether there should be a role for both and perhaps you should actually periodize periods of higher versus lower volume training. We also discuss whether you should take all of your sets to failure or whether you should leave a couple of reps in reserve and um, accumulate more volume that way. We also touch on the individual variation between people and how that might influence your training response and uh, the style of training you actually prefer and choose. And Scott uh, offers some very cool stories about the potential role of mental imagery and how you should approach your training. So there's a lot to take in from this episode as well, just like the previous one, which was actually my most popular episode to date. So fasten your seatbelts and prepare for another amazing episode with Dr. Scott Stevenson. So you've mentioned at the beginning somewhere that uh, what you consider the most important factor for hypertrophy is simply increasing weight in some sort of a manner at least periodically or on a on a regular basis. So usually people kind of like to pin against each other volume versus intensity. So the approach we mentioned where you do fewer sets and you absolutely crush each set and you take it to the absolute failure. Or the other, um, I guess, approach would be to leave uh, some reps in the tank or maybe just uh, do the final set to the failure and maybe do something like three sets and do RPE 8 and then a 9 and then a 10. So you leave two reps in the tank, one and then a final uh, failure set. So in the latter version you could accrue more volume within a workout and within a week. And uh, Mike would argue and the research kind of tends to point that way. So for example, Brett Schoenfeld's recent meta-analysis, I'm sure you've seen it, kind of show that well 10 plus sets per week produce more growth than uh, 1 to 5 sets or 6 to 9 sets. They couldn't um, find an upper limit because there weren't really sufficient studies to establish where the upper limit is. But it certainly didn't seem to slow down at 10 sets. Mike Usretter usually would say that some between 15 and 20 sets would be the sweet point for most people. So with this <laughs> whole thing in mind, what do you think would be the better approach or I guess to not um, put this whole uh, first dichotomy between the two. What I like to do and what Mike likes to do and I think is the most reasonable is to periodize it. So let's say you start with week one, you leave a couple reps in the reserve and then throughout each microsecond, right each week, you work harder and harder, harder, maybe even increase sets here and there. And let's say you can take all sets to failure or most sets to failure in the final week of your mesocycle before you do a deload week. Mm-hmm. So you threw a lot at me there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. So one of the things is, and I mentioned, I sort of hinted at the idea is that, and this is what, you know, sort of the foundational logic of DC training, and, and I think it still holds, is that if you in some way, as long as you're eating enough to uh, allow for the muscle gains to happen, 
if you manage to make yourself an impressive lifter, 500 pound squat, blah, 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 all for reps, then form is going to follow function to a certain degree. You can find power lifters who don't look like they're that strong, and you can find a lot of bodybuilders who are look tremendous and you think and they're not as strong as you would ever ever imagine. But to some degree, if you change your strength along the way, that is a kind of a sure way to gain muscle mass. I think I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think one of the things I recall from that kind of debate, I guess you could call it, they sort of set up as a debate between between Mike and Victor Black was that Mike was saying that Another form of a progressive overload would be adding volume, which I think is what you're sort of suggesting here. So, so adding in sets. Yeah, if you if you could, and still recover. And I know he's really big on recovery. If you can set up a scenario whereby you know you're doing um, you know eight sets and your total workload is X amount, and you work your way up to doing 15 sets, and you've basically, or let's say 16 sets, and you've doubled your workload meaning that your performance with those added sets is not going down, just making this really a simple example, um, then you're now, now capable of um, doing more. And that would probably mean, if you can do that, if those eight sets were really, 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 really tough, and those were sort of the best workload performance you could have when you're, when you're uh, capable of doing eight sets and somehow you work your way up to 16 sets, that when you're doing those 16 sets, that those first eight sets aren't your maximal capacity. You're laying back to some degree. Does that make sense? So if you if you wanted to, you could just do eight sets and have a higher total workload, meaning you use more weight and or reps. So the two ideas of a volume overload and a load overload or a tensile overload are tightly interwoven. And the interesting thing from the, the Schoenfeld um, meta-analysis, which, yeah, is true, they didn't really find uh, sort of a plateau in terms of muscle gains. They certainly, you know, looked like they maybe had the left side of an inverted U, perhaps. I mean, if you, if you had enough studies where people were doing, you know, 40 or 50 sets per muscle group, you would probably find some negative impact on muscle growth. So at some point, there would be sort of an optimal amount superimposed upon that. We can't forget this is that there is uh, obviously frequency, the other, other parameters, you know, to what extent does frequency play a role here? So if you do the same load in one workout per week versus two or three, and we know from some of other, Brad's other work that two or three is probably better. Two, maybe three, not sure. So that's there. And then, then we have the, the variability in the extent to which individuals can grow, which is tremendous. And then there's the interactions of those things. Why is it that you have so many of the best bodybuilders in the world who train with high volume, meaning they train relatively infrequently, but that seems to run counter to what the evidence suggests is best for eliciting muscle growth, which is a higher frequency. So why is that? Well, that probably means that for something about them is categorically different in terms of how they respond to the overload to the stimulus of resistance training. And one of the things that we know from looking at the responders and non-responders is that they have a, a better growth factor response. Um, IGF-1, MGF, those sorts of things. And these are the growth factors that are important for satellite cell proliferation, which most of the research suggests is really quite important for muscle growth. So I can, I'm getting off tangent here a little bit, but we've got some people for whom 
um, the empirical evidence, at least sort of the in the trenches evidence, is pretty clear, grow tremendously well from higher volume, once a week type of training. Um, then we have the bulk of the research, which if you're, you know, sort of, a lot of times these are just college students, but you can, if we just make the assumption that we've got sort of average genetic potential for muscle growth, seems to suggest that two or three times a week is best for muscle growth. And that's also kind of the, the case or a couple reviews and meta-analyses with strength also supports that notion that more frequent training is, is better, at least kind of in the short run. There are going to be different strokes for different folks, so to speak. And this is one of the things I, I, I sensed and I knew because I've just seen it and why I built it into Fortitude Training is I've got three different volume tiers. Um, they're not equally, equally parcel where volume tier one is half of what's in volume tier two, which is two-thirds of what's in volume tier three. But the recovery capacity of people varies so much such that if we try to pin someone down and say that 10 sets or 12 sets or 15 sets is optimal, how those people do those sets is tremendously important, not to mention the frequency of training too. We're not even talking about intensification techniques and all those sorts of things. So what is it that explains why we have so much variability in muscle growth? And that's, you see this in study after study. You see this in terms of the, the myofibrillar protein synthetic response. You see this in terms of the long-term fiber growth. You see this in terms of the whole, whole muscle cross-sectional area. Is some of that effort, is it all just genetics? There's a, there's a lot of it that's explained by growth factors and what, you know, in satellite cell proliferation. Actually, the number of the satellite cell density initially is important as well, as well as the growth factor response that, that would turn on the satellite cell proliferation. But some of it also has to do with the extent to which someone can really push themselves in the gym and the extent to which they can get a really good feel for training. Like one of the things with Dave Henry, and I can you know speak, I've trained with Dave um, more than anyone because we were training partners for like eight years is you can watch how he trains. He's just got a, a natural ability to focus on this, the target muscle he's trying to train. You can just see it in how he trains. Even someone with, with, like Ronnie Coleman, people used to talk about how sloppy he was, and you could compare him with the other guy who would train at Metroflex, Branch Warren, who everyone said was really sloppy. Looking at those two, and this is just eyeballing it, so this isn't like a scientific thing. You could probably do it, digitize the biomechanics and you know, evaluate, you know, inflection points in terms of how the weights move from a concentric to an eccentric phase of a rep. But Ronnie, just from watching him, like even when he was training back, which he always got so much shit for, he looked like he was doing a great job of keeping the back musculature engaged the entire time and using just enough body in English to allow him to lift on the concentric so he had a lot of loading on the eccentric where the muscle is intrinsically stronger. That's what you see with people who have just, they can fall into a really good, what Dante calls a power groove. You just can tell they're hitting the muscle. And then some people you can just see like overtly from their, from their biomechanics. Like I was, I was watching a guy, I saw a guy on a machine I was wanting to get on. He's doing a seated row and instead of like pulling back with his elbows low to his sides, he was like cocking his arms. He was basically, half of the movement was a, a biceps curl. And he was a big dude, but you could tell he's using his arms for a large percentage of that lift, much more than he wants. You don't want your biceps really involved at all, ideally, or as minimally as possible. So there's that. So there's all sorts of things that are, that are involved here. And then like, what's the interplay there? Let's say someone has 
they just got a natural, it's, it's easier for them to focus on the target muscle. The training for them is just like, it's, it's not a, a, a focus for them to know how to really, really nail a muscle in their training. And someone else is just a motor moron. They can't get their, like there are people that, you know, personal trainers might be laughing to start. I've, I've had, had this happen and seen this where someone's doing a knee extension and they're on like their 10th rep and they can't tell which muscle they're using. It's right there in front of their face. They feel pain, but they don't know where it is. That's their kinesthetic sense. They're that disconnected from their body. So take someone like that. They're going to have a, a much higher, if you could do an MRI or a functional MRI or a PET scan on their brain, they're going to have much greater activity in their brain and their, in their motor regions for doing these, these exercises than someone who just is naturally good at it. So what's that do to recovery? Um, how hard does that make the training? And how soon do they stop those sets? Do they go to eight reps when the RPE is, you know, maybe at eight reps, the RPE is nine because there's, they're just can't, they're motor morons, so to speak. And so they stop. Whereas someone else is like, they got a high pain tolerance and they're naturally inclined to train hard. The story I was going to mention before was when we did some muscle soreness testing and some pressure algometry, we pressure on a guy's leg. And I've told this story, many people have heard it before. There was a guy in this particular study of dozens of college students. We ran through a we did a, a private funded study, did a bunch of muscle soreness testing on them. And this guy was giving like measurements of like three out of a hundred on this visual analog scale. Like this wasn't painful at all. And a lot of people are doing 50 and 60. And I also knew his strength was destroyed because we were doing strength testing as well. So he got whacked by the muscle soreness protocol, but he didn't think the pain was anything. And afterwards I asked him, I, 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 you had some interesting measurements. Did you have some painful experiences during your life? And he's like, like, yeah, you know, I used to be kind of a daredevil and I, you know, um, and I had some heart issues. So they had done open heart surgery on me like three times. So cutting through his rib cage. So he'd experienced that as a kid. And he said he tried to jump his BMX bike over a wrought iron fence and he missed and he impaled himself on the top of this fence and was dangling there for hours until someone found him. Like this is a horror flick, you know? So you're pressing on my leg because my muscle is sore. No, that doesn't hurt very much. I've been impaled and had my body cut open numerous times. So what you're talking about ain't diddly. So those sorts of things are also involved there. That all plays into this tremendous biological inter-individual variability we have. So as far as your question goes, I think, and I, I kind of go back to that, that's a bunch of evidence pointing to kind of the same direction, I hope, is that it will depend on what, um, how the person wants to construct their overall training stimulus in terms of intensity of effort versus volume overload. Some people just aren't wired. They're not, they're in terms of pain, in terms of how they lift, what they like to do, to do a DC style training. Some people just don't want to do that. I had a guy who wanted to be my training partner and we got through the first day of training and I did my Widowmaker. And I, when I looked up and was recovered, I said, well, what kind of weight you want to use? He's like, I don't want to do that. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm done. That's it. I'm not doing that. This is our last day. Of I'm like, okay. And he was, he was honest. It was hilarious. It was great. And, but other people like to get a pump. They can go in there and they can get into a groove. I've had clients who like to throw on some music and they just fall into this groove and they just go and they can do set after set after set and they can do a, can get a volume overload and they might have the genetics, um, the growth factor responses with are persistent that allow that satellite cell proliferation to persist over many, many, many days. Such an infrequent high volume training is perfect for them. So I think it's sort of nearsighted. It's a mistake that we make so often 
in many, many ways, you see it all the time, like what do the pros take? As if they're all the same, you know, Dave trains with fortitude training. It's one of the best pros there is. A lot of guys train with high volume. Dorian Yates is one of the best bodybuilders of all time, relatively low volume. Ronnie Coleman, the greatest of all time, high volume and high frequency. He did a three-way split six days a week. People forget that about Ronnie. He was training everything twice a week too, but he recovered from it. So it kind of depends on the person, really. So the short version is it depends. <laughs> yeah, um, I kind of wish I took notes. I hope I won't forget anything. But yeah, with regards to personality, I have two female clients right now that I train. And one of the girls, she's like, you can see her face turn blue. And when I ask her, how was it? She she would be like, well, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> and the other and the other female, I see on her that she can do like five reps easily. And she, she just relaxed the weight. That's it. I couldn't do anymore. But they are relatively untrained. So we still work on improving week after week. So it's no big deal. And I really like that you mentioned personality and what people prefer. Because I certainly don't want to dogmatize any approach over another one. And I think we can all agree that um, consistency is going to be the most important factor. And then improving your training in some sort of a way. So doing more weights, more reps, more sets potentially, even though that's likely not necessary up to a point, then this whole concept that we're talking about is really minutia in the big scheme of things. Maybe it's the last 10% or something like that. You know, I, I wrote out an answer. You know, the answer to this question is what's the most important factor? And I, what I wrote down was it's the one that's missing. <laughs> it's the one that you're not doing, right? <laughs> And we know this because novelty, like if you just change programs, you're, you're putting something that you weren't doing and it creates a novel stress. That's why you get so sore the first time you come back from lifting. It's a novel stress. There's multiple stresses, volume and intensity and metabolic stress and et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's different ways to look at it. Those are all novel. So All of the sets in resistance training studies are, are taken to failure usually just to standardize things because otherwise you would have confounding variables. And I realized that now um, uh, HIT proponent might say, yeah, well, that wasn't true failure. And uh, if they could lower the bar a bit, then it wasn't true failure. But you know what I mean? We're talking about concentric failure. So they can no longer press up the bar during a bench press or something, then that's the failure. And it seemed that even in that circumstance, more sets was yielding better results. So um, in that sense... It would make sense that more sets would still result in, result in more uh, muscle growth. And uh, the recovery point of view is something that Mike definitely emphasizes. Because even the whole MRV concept, if you're familiar with the whole maxi coverable volume, he coined the concept to convince strength coaches that uh, you can't just tackle on more and more work on their athletes. So they were trying to do their uh, sport-specific work and then tackle on the strength training simply on top of the already pretty much topped out work capacity so that was his whole uh, thing with the mrv which is now kind of used to justify reckless amounts of volume so we are definitely not talking about 40 sets but we are talking kind of hard sets so something like four reps in reserve tops so maybe three to four reps so still challenging not to failure of course but still challenging sets and i had this argument um, question and interaction with guys like eric helms and uh, greg knuckles and mike zordros and the like and um, i asked them if they think that we are missing something by not training to failure so not pushing every set to failure and they said that 
even if you leave a rep or two in your reserve, you still get probably similar results, but you don't get that um, dent in recovery that you mentioned yourself. So I guess the real question is this, whether you should, let's say you, they can do 16 sets with two reps in reserve, they could do eight sets complete to failure. And I guess the point would be that if you do 16 sets with two reps in reserve, that would yield a better result than eight sets taken to failure because the overall volume load would be higher in the higher set uh, routine, I guess. I, I think it's going to be depend on the person to a certain degree. And that is going to be a function of what really pushing to failure is for that individual, what two reps in the tank is. I think literally... If and there's a there's an old there's an article I wrote for um, Elite FTS. It's like I think the title is like something. Don't forget what you already know. But I I reviewed an article by Ikai and Steinhaus from like '69 on psychological determinants of human strength. And they did some pretty cool stuff in this study. You can't really get away with doing these things anymore. They tested the effects of alcohol. They they were looking for disinhibition, the central nervous system, various ways that, that can happen. So they tested alcohol, they tested methamphetamine, they tested shouting, they tested gunshots, and they tested hypnosis, the impact on human strength. And they found that each of those worked. They're having people do an isometric maximal elbow flexion uh, on an isometric, an isokinetic dynamometer. So that was like the basic test. And what they would superimpose, the, the really interesting ones, and this sort of relates back to what would happen near the end of a set, where you have someone motivating you or you find some internal source of motivation. Out of nowhere, they're pushing, they're pushing, they're pushing, and all of a sudden, ah! You get a screamer. And their strength would go up. They would get an increment in strength. They had a starter gun. They shoot a gun off and scare the bejesus out of these people. And their strength improved. And they actually did some hypnosis. This is published in the Journal of Applied Physiology. It's a pretty well-known journal, and they actually documented that their hypnosis was working correctly by taking one of their subjects, hypnotizing him, and then they, uh, they gave him the suggestion that he'd be having a hot poker touched to his hand, and they just used the back of a pen, and he actually had a blister form. Wow. This is what it says in the methods. It's Journal of Applied Physiology. It's right there to be read. So how the heck does that happen? What are the mechanisms without the actual tissue damage to cause an inflammatory and blistering response in that skin. There was no hot poker. It was just a thermoneutral piece of plastic, the back of a pen. How do we explain that? What the heck's going on there? So back to the question, eight sets versus 16, you know, 16 leaving a couple in the tank. Here's my take on that is again, I think we're trying to, trying to bottleneck an answer, even to some degree. You have to create these, these simplified examples so you can sort of um, come up with, you know, sort of bifurcate things to a certain degree. Why not both? Hmm. Why not periodize? Let's take a step back. Yeah, periodize both. In one case, you do that. This is what, you know, the standard, um, you know, linear periodization, Matveyev type of linear periodization schema would, would entail. Where you start off training with a higher volume, kind of taking it easy develop some metabolic capacity, some work capacity, and then work your way into more intense types of types of training. Whether those two things would be equivalent if you just start off, I think it would depend on to what extent someone can really turn it on and what two reps shy of failure really means to them, as well as all the other things that are involved in recovery. So some people, I think I would, because I tried this for years, I messed around with high volume for a long time. I have a hard, I, two reps shy of failure would be probably failure for many people just for me. The other thing that, you know, you have to consider is is the age, the training age of the individual, what they've been through, what their history. So, you know, as you get older, and the more you've trained, the more you know how to train hard. So you're two reps in the tank 
is now might have been like one rep in the tank or this is my last rep, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And I say this with decades of training under my belt and I still train like an idiot. So, cause that's how I like to train. So me with two reps in the tank, I just know, knowing myself, I would, you know, stop with two reps in the tank. Probably some of those sets, I might only have one rep in the tank or that like that second rep. If I were to take those to failure, that second rep would have been a nosebleeder. It would have been just like a, a knockout rep. So it depends on what you, what you mean by two reps in the tank. So that's a hard thing. It's a really hard thing to quantify. I mean, heck, even if we look at attempts to quantify percent motor unit activation, where they used a, a superimposed twitch technique, or they use another sort of motor unit activation technique, where they'll have someone do a maximal effort and then superimpose a twitch to the femoral nerves to do a knee extension, all out effort. And then they want to see, assuming you've activated all the motor units that are available, they'll superimpose an electrical signal to the, the femoral nerve, which would turn on the, the hamstrings. And if all those motor units are already activated, you will get no increment in force. Well, when I we try, we even played around with this at a lot of East End when I was in grad school, and some studies show this. You even we even find found, found studies where in their methods they said they threw out these subjects. Sometimes when you turn on the stem, you get a decrement in force. Well, that's because you can en end up um, having antidromic flow where you basically influ you 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 basically negate some of the um, the ascend or the descending motor unit activation. You turn off those motor units because you interfere with what they were doing in terms of activation. So you can have a decrement in force. How can that be? How to extent to which people can maximally activate motor units is highly variable. So it's hard to know. Some people, 16 sets would be better. Others, eight sets might be better. I think I even said it myself, and I hope I did that. Well, I'm not trying to pin one against the other. And uh, I think he mentioned this during the debate with Victor that why not? Because uh, he has the other concept of max adaptive volume, which is a bit different from MRV. So the volume you need to maximally adapt at a given point. And his uh, argument is that this MAV rises towards the mesocycle. So let's say if you the first week of your um, after the deload, ACES was your MAV essentially. Then by the um, fifth week or sixth week of your accumulation phase, now your MAV might be at 16 sets. Mm -hmm. So he likes to titrate volume up via increases in sets and increases in weight if you can. And certainly if you can do that within the mesocycle, you do that uh, between each mesocycle. So week one of mesocycle two would be a bit heavier than the week one of the previous mesocycle. And that's kind of the approach I take. And that's the one that makes most sense to me. Because I think the approach of just... Like if you do a couple of sets, then it's fine, I guess. But if you do decent amount of volume and you take your sets to failure all the time, it just seems unsustainable to me. Like the factors you've mentioned, mental um, excitement and someone shooting a gun or something, that will certainly increase your performance acutely, but it's not really sustainable. And you can't really ask someone to kidnap your family <laughs> during each time you train. No, but you can learn to, I mean, you can use mental imagery. There's a whole body of limited uh, literature on mental imagery training where it improves strength uh, in some cases as well as the actual training does. People just imagine the training. So there's a powerful training technique in that. And I tell you what, I mean, I, I won't get, get into it because it probably will, I'll, I might even break down here if I talk about it too much. But there have been a few times in the last few months when I was crying in the gym. I was crying because of the emotions that I brought forth. 
And you can train yourself to do that. Like that's what actors do. You know, you see those actors where you're like, oh my God, look how they're emoting. Those are real. So you can do that. And not everyone can do that, but it's possible. I know it because I do it. I've seen George Lehman when he, like I've seen some videos of him deadlifting and he said that, um, I think his brother died and uh, he says to himself that if he pulls that weight, his brother is going to be brought back to life. And he's in tears essentially when he deadlifts. Yeah, I, I have some similar types of, I mean, there we have a, a dark self, you know, that we don't generally talk about a lot of times. There's a dark side to many of us, you know, I don't want to get into like Jungian philosophy or anything like that, but like there's an aspect of that to a lot of us. And you can, there's, we like to watch violence. We like to watch like lots of dark movies. These things are popular for a reason. It appeals to us. We don't talk about it, but all those things can be used to drive your training if you want. Yeah. So that's a perfect example. Like the and the, the speech that Kai Green gave, I mean, you can simply, there's all, you can do something like just think about like if you want to someone that, that pissed you off during the day, you know, and you didn't do anything about it, but you still have some bottled up frustration, let it loose. Think about the, you know, I mean, I'll get gruesome here. Like some people have been abused, you know, in various ways in their past. Think about rising above those situations. You don't want to perpetuate that pain. That might not be the best thing for getting past whatever hangups those might produce in your life. But um, we all have life struggles that, and it's all relative. You know, some people, you know, lived in concentration camps, and you know, some people um, didn't get the attention they wanted from their parents. But all of them are can be for the individual very, very um, meaningful. You can draw upon that if you want. If that's your, if your, if that's your bent, you can do it. So you, you can turn yourself into an absolute maniac in the gym some better than others but um those are the people that a lot of times will make progress if they can if they can call upon that because it's within our capabilities so i think you can shoot off a gun psychologically speaking yeah i see what you mean i'm not sure what that does to recovery though so the same workout on paper how much recovery demands would that have if you applied that sort of a attitude i guess to it you might need extra two days of recovery and yeah you you could simply uh, not do that and uh, leave a bit uh, in the tank and come back two days later and repeat the same workout or something like that and accumulate more volume more reps more quality volume i guess yeah and that, that's you know that's where you know, you'd have to drop your volume down if you train that way if you if you partake of that and that's what you like to do and you have to adjust yeah i guess it all depends on personality and i kind of wanted to say this previous and i forgot <laughs> that well um let's say you end up squatting 500 or something that will take you decades so all of these things that we're talking about kind of are in the more um, relatively short term i guess so during the decades it kind of all washes out and i think the big big thing is really what keeps you in the gym actually <laughs> What keeps you progressing and what keeps you injury free? Yeah, just thinking the same thing. This would be the one of the main uh, arguments for periodizing relative and absolute efforts. So periodizing how close you get to failure and how heavy your weights are. Because um, novelty is definitely a thing and after a deload you are kind of bit detrained even though it was only a week but you are still partially detrained so you can get away with uh, training a bit lighter weights than your last week of the accumulation phase and so easy gains essentially what would be cold and uh, that doesn't increase your risk of injury if you are let's say at three reps in reserve that's uh, a much lower risk of injury than being at failure or even beyond failure. I've got two thoughts there. One, just sort of a philosophical one, and one on constructing the deload. This is a fun conversation, by the way. This is good. I'm glad glad you brought me on. People ask me all the time, you know, like, 
how do you look like that or how long you've been lifting, what have you. And the, sometimes the conversation comes around to, you know, I, I started to lift or I bought a membership or what have you. And really, to a large extent, we're creatures of immediate gratification. You got to find some bigger reason, hope ideally, but also some some immediate value in your training. It should be fun. There's to be something about it that you really enjoy, I think. If it's just torture from start to finish, maybe you need to torture yourself. I mean, maybe you're like that character, the Punisher, who's just like, you know, just like he's built to like, you know, just punish himself as much as everyone else. But there should be something that you're getting out of your training, I think. Otherwise, it's it's not uh, sustainable. You won't keep doing it. So maybe you got to geek out with, you know, looking at your loading and you come home and you plug everything in your computer and, you know, you you really love sort of tracking minutia. And that in and of itself is is really rewarding to you, then, then do it. Like, make, if it keeps you doing it, then that's great. And it's enjoyable in and of itself because the external, the body, especially in the case of bodybuilding, that can be taken from you in any moment. And that can be taken in, in a split second, get in a car wreck, and you've got a spinal cord injury. I spent a few years working with people with, with spinal cord injuries, and it was kind of a, a shock to me because I'd been lifting for quite a while at that time, and I was, you know, I, I really had to grapple with what that would be like? How, what would I do? What would, what, how would I how would I respond to that? I know how I would now, but it gives you some perspective. So the training should be, you know, something about intrinsically valuable to you in some way, because the uh, the body could be taken at any time. I think that's my thought, at least. You know, I think that that tends to it's it fits with some things that I picked up from a guy named Rod Dishman, who was uh, kind of the foremost expert on exercise adherence for years. He spent decades of his academic career researching it, and then he sort of abandoned that line of research and started doing uh, sort of psychobiology stuff with with rats and those sorts of things more so because he just sort of figured out that that people are just creatures of immediate gratification. You know, we just you can come up with you know means of social support and peer support and apply various models of health behavior and that sort of thing and get you know some improvement in exercise adherence. But we're like we want you know immediate neurochemical rewards. We want dopamine and some serotonin now and again, and we want to feel good. That's what we want to want. So if training, we got to make it feel good in some way, shape, or form. Otherwise, it just it'll extinguish the behavior. Won't continue. So that, and that and he took him twenty years to figure that out. So yeah, that's why I try as much as I can to not force either of my clients or people I happen to train or whatever, or even myself, <laughs> to not force anyone into a training system or an exercise or a setup or whatever that they don't enjoy because ultimately if they are going to stick to it it has to be effective and efficient but it also has to be fun and yes for us uh, that pain and that weight crushing us and whatever that's fun actually and even the hunger during a diet or whatever that's fun even though it might be acutely considered painful and whatever but it's still in the long game it's still uh, worthwhile so this would get us way off topic but i think to some degree we as humans are kind of wired for that we're wired to be dissatisfied and i say that because it's dissatisfaction with life's current state of affairs that led humans to seek out new ways to survive, to seek out new territory. Maybe it, you know, it created intermingling where, you know, members of one tribe of a hunter-gatherer would like, you know, make their way over to another tribe and, you know, and you, and you spread DNA around. But something about us, and this is obvious in how we are, is, is basically in, intrinsically dissatisfied 
that's sort of how we are, and this is sort of the, that's the nature of our suffering, if you look at it from a Buddhist perspective, but we're just inherently dissatisfied with the current moment to some degree. So it's what's put us on the, sort of made us this sort of virus that spread across earth in the way that it is, where we just can figure out a way to like take over any environment and, and um, do what we've done to the rest of the species and the environment of the earth. But it also makes us, I think, sort of wires us to, you know, want to sort of seek out things that are difficult and that create struggle because those are the, you know, if, if we have, if we feel okay with that, there's survival value in that. I think natural selection has probably brought us out, brought that out in us to some degree. So being a, a, someone who just loves the, the stress and the pain of exercise, someone who, you know, who could somehow see the adventure in like making an Arctic trek you know, or having to brave the, the struggle of, you know, traversing a mountain range because, you know, wherever you happen to be is, you know, the river is run dry or whatever. That sort of finding and feeling and sensing some sort of intrinsic value in a struggle like that, it's built into our psyches. The people who are just like, oh, whatever, we'll just sit here and wait till the river starts to flow again. Well, those are the ones who sat there and died of dehydration. <laughs> yeah. Those are the ones who didn't make it. It's the ones who are like, you know, we got to go. We got to kick ass. We got to take names. We got to find something new. We need to be innovators. Those are the humans that are, that are around. You know, those are the ones who made it. I think we don't have ways to express that a lot of times in exercise and, you know, sports in general. Bodybuilding, for sure, I think, is a way to express that part of our nature. Yeah, I was listening a while back and I actually took some notes on this. I was, I was listening to the podcast episode of Joe Rogan with Jock Willink. Oh yeah, he's awesome. And um, they discussed this whole uh, concept and the value of doing something physically challenging and the primal need for it, I guess, and how people who don't do that are kind of lacking something and you can kind of see it in them because then they turn into other avenues that are potentially destructing and to themselves and to the other people around them so i noticed this myself too that i just i just miss it honestly and i feel so much better and book i've been listening to is one by robert sapolsky he's been on the joe rogan show too i think yep i listened to the one he did with joe and the one he did with Sam Harris. We listen to all the same podcasts here, it sounds like. <laughs> There's some good stuff. Yeah, I love Sam's podcast. But in uh, Sapolsky's book, Behave, it's a pretty long segment in there. I'm doing the audio book, but he talks about variations in um, dopamine receptor and how that relates to individualistic communities and, and cultures like the United States where the sort of a priority on the individual and standing out versus collectivist cultures. And one of the things they've been able to do is sort of trace... Um, the different dopamine receptor isoforms, which have relatively different affinities for dopamine, which is involved with our dopaminergic reward system. And you can, sort, you can track the percentage of the dopamine receptor isoform that has low affinity. So these people are sort of lacking in the dopaminergic reward signal. So they need more adventure. They need more stimulus out of life um, than people who have the different isoforms. And that tracks with migration patterns of humans around the world, all the way down like to the Amazon basin and across the Bering Strait, you know, from the cradle of life and kind of around the world, there's like this, um, the people who were the greatest explorers, the ones who just like hopped on a boat and just went for it or said, we're going to just cross that strip of land. We have no idea what's over there. We're just going to do it. Those are the ones who, at least in terms of this, just this dopamine stuff, 
this is just one one aspect of their neurophysiology or the ones who are sort of adventure and pleasure seekers because in order to get that dopaminergic kick they had to do something crazy they had to jump out of airplanes you know if they had them or they had to climb mountains or go on these you know crazy adventures and the people who are like well we can just hang out here we're, we're cool with how this is they were different and i i think it would be interesting to see if someone looked at like extreme sports versus chess players or something like that versus just a control population, what the range is, like just for instance, that dopamine receptor. And, and I suspect that maybe you and me and Jocko and Joe and a bunch of other people that we know who like to just like go in the gym and just alter their consciousness to an extraordinary extent uh, might have those dopamine receptors that, that need a little bit extra dopamine in order to get a strong signal to the neurons. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I wouldn't consider myself on that extreme because I certainly don't uh, feel the need to do unnecessarily dangerous things. <laughs> but um, I still like to challenge myself, both physically and mentally. So Intermediate, maybe. There's seven isoforms, I think, so you might be in the middle somewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle with everything. Genetics-wise, for training, for muscle growth, for strength, definitely, because I'm not terrible and I'm not, obviously not... Uh, amazing either so it would make sense that i'm in the middle with regards to that too so i think it would be great to wrap this up for now and uh, continue at another time because we have gone for jesus two hours two hours and a half or something like that and uh, yeah we haven't even gotten to a third of the <laughs> of the topics i wanted to <laughs> touch on <laughs> Yeah, I thought this might happen. You're too, you know what it is? You're too interesting. <laughs> it's, 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 I'm going to blame it on you. It's because you have such good responses and to my responses that it just, we go off topic. It's just too much fun talking. So thank you. You're welcome. It's a topic that I am super interested in and I, I could talk about with, I can tell. Well, with interesting people, I could talk about it for weeks, I guess. So in case anyone wants to connect with you on social media or find your training program or go to your podcast, what would be the best uh, places to find you and find all that? Uh, Fortitude training dot net is easiest advices radio i think it's dot com if you just type in advices radio you'll you'll find that that's where the podcast is hosted but there's a link somewhere on my website too awesome and uh can link your facebook account and i know you're on, on instagram i don't know how much you use that but um... my instagram is actually fun it's mostly um when I come up with some novel exercise variations, because I think that's an important part of muscle growth, we haven't really got into exercise selection so much, but it's fun. I come up with some kind of, uh, even I've even spoof on myself sometimes because I come up with some weird stuff, but what I think are effective exercises. And I, I always get asked the question, it's funny, after what we talked about, how do you do all these weird exercises? Why don't you just do like real basic regular training? I'm like, oh, I do, I do. <laughs> but everyone does that. I'm trying to add something new and different here. Yeah. My main issue is when an exercise hurts people or doesn't fit them structurally and anatomically at all and, and they kind of force themselves and they just go through joint pain and pick up injury after injury and still go back to the same old shit that injured them in the first place. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's part of, you know, being the tribal animals that we are is that if everyone's saying you should do this and we... You know, we fall in line. Thinking for oneself is, is not something that a lot of people are inclined to do necessarily because, you know, there's, there's safety in doing what most people suggest to do. And it's not a bad idea to say, you know, back squats are going to be good for your, for your legs. But there's also some common sense that you think would come into play there. 
but not for everyone. Yeah, it's like the saying, common sense isn't so common. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, ironically, it's funny that we say common sense because the common sense sometimes goes against what the common notions are. So it's not really common sense to pay attention to the, the obvious signs that the exercise isn't working for you. Yeah, you would think that people would would stop if something causes them pain, but pain in the bad way, at least. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Scott, I want to thank you for this fantastic conversation, and I really look forward to the second part of this. And um, I really, I really enjoy this. Yeah, me too. This was great, bud. I really liked it. We've, well, at this rate, we've got about five more hours of podcasting to do before we get through just the questions you threw out. So yeah, I didn't anticipate uh, the old um, rabbit horse, I guess, that <laughs> would come up. So yeah, this might give people a chance to ask some questions. I think you put it out there for some questions from other folks. So if, you know, if you want to um, bring some of those into the the next time we talk, that's cool too. Yeah, awesome. So I will let you go train and. Um, I hope you have a great productive uh, workout and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, my man. Enjoy your day. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So that was episode 14 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Dr. Scott Stevenson. I hope you enjoyed the episode and found it valuable and uh, helpful and hopefully took some nuggets that you can incorporate into your own training. Now, as always, it's time for me to give what I thought were the top three most important key take-home messages from this episode. The first important message here is to put everything we've discussed with Scott during these two episodes into perspective and um, see the bigger picture. Like I've mentioned, like Scott has mentioned, if you want to be successful with your physique goals, this is going to be a journey that's going to take you decades. Like Scott has been lifting for almost four decades, so he definitely knows what he's saying. So always, whenever we discuss these advanced programming methods and whatnot, keep that in mind that that's with the assumption that people are actually going to stick to the training and are actually going to lift year after year. So regardless if you prefer a higher volume or lower volume training or anything in between or you prefer to take your test to failure or not to failure, make sure that you are actually progressing over time. I think I mentioned this in the previous episode too, but it's something worth reiterating over and over again because I see it so often in gyms um, with people not doing it. So make sure that what you're lifting right now for 8 reps, 10 reps, 15 reps, whatever, it's actually heavier than what you were lifting 6 months or a year ago. And... Um, If you do that for decades, you're definitely going to get bigger too. Another big part is avoiding injuries. So that's where I think intelligent exercise selection and programming comes into place. It's not really that one gives you more optimal results in 8 weeks or 12 weeks, whatever. That's like, yeah, that's relevant. But in the big scheme of things, it's not really. The big thing is actually avoiding injuries and being able to lift year after year safely and... um, being able to make progress that way. Point number two is um, around the inter-individual differences that Scott has mentioned too and the effect of personality on the type of training people prefer and actually can stick to. So is doing a couple of sets per exercise and bringing them to absolute failure optimal? Maybe not. Is very advanced progression method where you try to find that optimal uh, maximum adaptive volume for each week the best way to grow 
perhaps, but it doesn't matter if someone doesn't like it and they won't do it. So unless you're working with some robots or some Olympic athletes, in which case you're probably not listening to this episode, real people have uh, actual real feelings and preferences and um, lives and um, families and whatnot. So if someone only has 60 minutes to lift or whatever, 45 minutes, it doesn't matter that you think that doing 15 sets per workout is optimal if they only have time for 6. If someone only has time for 6 sets per session, yeah, they better take those tests to failure because that's going to give them the best return on investment. So just because you think that something is optimal for you or for someone in a particular scenario, that doesn't mean that someone else's training isn't optimal for them in their particular situation, in their life circumstances. And the final point number three is around the value of doing something challenging, both physically and mentally, on a regular basis, ideally every day. So like I said, I found the discussion between Jocko and Joe Rogan absolutely fascinating and um, it reminded me of what Jordan Peterson said to Joe Rogan too. And I find it absolutely amazing that two people with uh, completely different backgrounds can come to very similar conclusions. But uh, before I digress, there is definitely something valuable and um, primal or evolutionarily useful or whatever you want to call it in doing a task or a thing that seems almost impossible and something that humbles you initially but then you get better as you start doing it more and more and eventually you overcome it and then you put new obstacles in your way and you overcome that too and so on and so forth. So regardless if you prefer lifting, if you prefer mountain climbing, if you prefer uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if you prefer another combat sport, whatever you prefer, it doesn't really matter that much. The important thing is to actually do something and the benefits go way beyond just the obvious physique improvements or uh, health improvements. They really translate to all aspects of life and uh, you can see this with a lot of the top bodybuilders who are not only successful in their particular sport, but they also have successful businesses and uh, are successful people in pretty much most aspects of their lives. So there's definitely something there. So I think I've gone long enough, so I'll just wrap it up here. Thanks again for listening. I hope you liked the episode. And I've made some upgrades to my microphone setup. So... I hope that the audio quality was much better on this one than the last one. And I'll do my best to continue upgrading both my equipment and my uh, interviewing abilities as I do these more and more. And um, hopefully I will be able to give you guys continuously better quality episodes, both from an audio point of view and both from a content point of view. So thanks again and... um, I'll see you all next week.